As we begin this morning our exposition of Hebrews chapter 11, we need to ask why it's here in the book and why it makes a difference in your lives. And to do that, I want you to go back with me five weeks and six verses. Can we do that? Five weeks to where we stopped in our exposition of Hebrews and six verses to verse 34 of chapter 10. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, and I'll try to show you why I believe this chapter is written, and you will see, I think, very quickly the relevance that it has for your life. Verse 34, you remember the situation. Christians had been put in jail in those early days among that church. Those who had not been put in jail were faced with a crisis as to whether or not they would go underground and disappear or whether they would identify with the suffering church and thus put themselves at risk along with their property. And here's what happened in verse 34. You showed sympathy to the prisoners. And as a result, they were plundered. And you accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Now, my contention is that the whole book of Hebrews, the whole book of Hebrews is written to produce that kind of people. People who consider the consequences of radical Love, namely that it might cost you your property, it might cost you your life, it might cost you abuse. In fact, it says over in chapter 13, verse 13, let us go with him outside the camp bearing abuse for him. might cost you your reputation. A life that considers those options and possibilities and nevertheless chooses the dangerous path of love. That's what the book of Hebrews is written to produce. They accepted joyfully the plundering or the seizure of their property. Now, we've been looking at a lot of truth in the book of Hebrews. We've seen Christ giving himself once for all as the final sacrifice for our sins. We've seen Him perfecting us for all time by a single offering. We've seen Him giving cleanness of conscience to us by the blood that He shed on the cross. We've seen Him being a sympathetic high priest. We've seen Him interceding for us. We've seen Him promise to put the law in our minds and write it on our hearts. We've seen Him say, I will be your God, I will walk among you and you'll be my people. We've seen Him remembering our sins no more and promising never to leave us or forsake us. We've been reveling in the truth of Hebrews for over a year now. And if you ask why, why is it all here? Why all that good news? The practical, down-to-earth, Monday morning and Monday afternoon reason is so that people like verse 1034 would come into existence. People who risk property and life to bring the love of God to others, whether in prison or elsewhere. People who don't look 
to their own comforts, their own ease, their own security, their own safety, as though that's got to be. People who are free from the American assumptions of style and safety and wealth and leisure. People who know there's one life to live. One. And what is done in the name of Christ and for the eternal good of people is all that lasts. Everything else is consumed. Verse 34 is very clear about how that comes about. It says, you joyfully accepted the seizure of your property. Now, here's the key. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, confidence in hope that something better abiding is coming to us, namely God and all of his promises beyond the grave is the power that releases people to live lives of radical love here and now, who are not all consumed with your own affairs, all consumed with, oh, if I do that, then I'll lose this. If I go there, if I go to Uganda, if I go to Tanzania, if I go to Tibet, I'll lose this this summer. Or if I make a life calling out of doing this, then I'll lose this. People who think of the losses and thus are hindered in paths of radical love are not doing, verse 34, namely, knowing that you have a better possession and an abiding one. You can't out-sacrifice God. You can't give up more than you get back. So what Hebrews is written to produce is a kind of radical, life-sacrificing, property-risking love that moves in the pathway of obedience. Take the grace of God to as many people as possible. This is not a beautiful world we live in. In spite of getting up on a morning like this with the sun shining and walking into an air-conditioned room and experiencing sweet worship with God's people all clothed with full stomachs and places to live with a roof over our heads, it's a dream world we live in. This is a Disneyland I was reading last night an article by Robert Seipel, the president of World Vision. You know, the group that raises about $300 million a year for relief. And the interviewer asked, do you ever get discouraged? And he said, well, in 1991, I went to Romania and found 200,000 children warehoused in horrific circumstances. And it was the worst thing I'd ever seen until Somalia. And then I went to Somalia and saw 75% of the children under five at risk and dying, and many of them died before anything could be done. It was the worst thing I'd ever seen until Rwanda. More people died in Rwanda in six weeks than in four years of Nazi occupation in France. And it was the worst thing I'd ever seen, he said, until Bosnia. And when I went to Bosnia, there I saw torture like I didn't think existed in the modern world. A grandfather forced to eat the liver of his grandson cut out in front of him before they shot him. 
Yeah, I get discouraged. And when you read something like that, which is simply like opening a window onto the world from the amusement park of America, you've got to come to terms with what your life is about. You're just going to maximize comforts? Are we just going to get a nice job, new, move to a nice house, buy a nice boat, get another house so I can have some relief from the stress? Or are we going to spend ourselves for others and lay down our lives I mean, I don't want to pastor a church of comfortable people. I have no desire to increase the comforts of American rich people. Namely, everybody in this room, including me. I want to be and to be a means of becoming Hebrews 10.34. And the whole Bible... The Holy Incarnation, the Holy Spirit, and the Church of Jesus Christ exists to produce that kind of radical representation of the grace of God in the world and freedom from the bondage to fleeting pleasures of sin. And if that's the case, we might ask at this point in the book of Hebrews, What more then can he say than to us he has said to release this kind of love that he's described there in verse 34? And the answer is chapter 11. Chapter 11 in the book of Hebrews is a catalog of saints from the Old Testament who have seen the reward of the better possession and the abiding one of chapter 10, verse 34, have been able to apprehend it by faith and who have cast themselves on it so satisfyingly that they can do incredible exploits of suffering and obedience for God. And we're going to look at them for weeks to come. So there is something more he can say in spite of all the good news that He has given us in this book to free us from self-preoccupation and to make us radical lovers in His power. There, There is more that He can say, and He has said it, namely, there are some stories to tell of people in whose lives it happened. And that's what these verses are about in Hebrews 11. So, Let's begin with the introductory words this morning, just verses 1 to 3. And I hope you'll come back and hear the stories in the weeks to come. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Now, notice the link between these verses and verse 34 of chapter 10. 
The point of verse 34 in chapter 10 is that love and sacrifice were enabled by knowing that we have a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, love is enabled by hope. Hope works itself out through love. Now that hope in verse 1 of chapter 11 is called faith. Faith is the assurance, the confidence of things hoped for. So everything that's coming in chapter 11 is an illustration of the kind of life that flows when faith is the kind of faith illustrated in chapter 10, verse 34, namely, hoping and knowing and being confident and assured that we have a better possession and an abiding one. So our task now is to understand, first of all, what is this faith in verse 1 of chapter 11. It has two parts to it. You see those? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. That's definition number one. Number two, faith is the conviction of things not seen. Now these words, assurance and conviction, are hard words. They're hard words in the Greek to translate into English. Some of you may remember, if you've been a Christian long enough to have ever read the King James Version, what verse 1 sounded like in the King James. It was very different. It went like this. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, the word substance and the word assurance are not the same in English. And the word evidence and the word conviction are not the same. So what's going on here? Why this big difference between the King James and most other modern versions? It's not because of any new archaeological discoveries or any new developments in linguistic theory. It's, it's judgment calls about communication here and what is carried by these two difficult Greek words behind the word substance or assurance in the first half of the verse and conviction or evidence in the second half of the verse. So here's what I want to do. I want to try to unpack these words contextually because I'm not going to pull any Greek on you here except to say that the word in Greek for conviction is used no other place in the New Testament. This is the problem we're up against here. You can't look at five or ten or twenty other instances and say, well, it means this here, 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 and here, so it probably means this here. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. You have to go outside the New Testament, and as you look around in the various uses, it almost always, in fact, I couldn't find any exceptions, it means argument or evidence or reason in the second half of the verse there. Faith is the evidence or the argument or the proof. Now, the reason translators don't use that is because I think it doesn't make sense. 
<laughs> I think that's the basic reason. It doesn't seem to make sense. Let's take these one at a time. Let's focus on this second one first, then we'll go back to the first one. If you say faith is the evidence or the proof or the argument for things that you can't see, it sounds like uh, double talk or circular reasoning or um, kind of uh, power over, you know, mental power used over matter. We make things happen with our faith or, or something like that. It, it, and, and that would all be very misleading. And so not seeing their way clear to a good, solid meaning for the word evidence in this context, conviction is used. Now, what are we going to make of that? Is, is there a meaning that you can give to this word evidence or proof or argument which is an objective thing outside of me, not a subjective response in me to the evidence. See, the problem with evidence is that I'm, my faith needs evidence. My faith isn't evidence. That's the way I think, anyway. I need evidence to believe. I am not evidence. So what, what would it mean to call faith evidence here? Now, there's no, no magic in the Greek here. There's magic in the context, which you can all see. So look with me at verse 3. Now, verse 3, I believe, is an illustration of the function of faith described in the second half of verse 1. Verse 1 says, faith is the conviction or the evidence of things you can't see. Now, that's what verse 3 is about. Let's read it. Verse 3 says, By faith we understand. Now that, right off the bat, should alert you. Understand by faith? How can faith be an understanding? My faith doesn't... My my mind understands. How does faith understand? So right there you've got a, a, a little flag waving, there might be more to the King James than you think, that faith is evidence... Let's read it. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God so that what is seen, you hear the words coming back from verse 1, what is seen was not made out of things which are visible, namely the word of God. So notice the link between the second half of verse 1 and verse 3. Verse 1 says that faith is the evidence of things not seen. And verse 3 says... Faith understands that the world, which is seen, was created by something unseen, namely the Word of God. Now, here's the question. How do you know that the world was created by the Word of God? How do you know that? You weren't there. And you know what? Had you been there, it wouldn't have helped. Because it was made by the Word of God, and you can't see the Word of God. If you'd been there and somehow been allowed to see the sudden, spontaneous origin of matter, you wouldn't know where it came from, any more than looking at it today. So don't begrudge yourself the fact that you came on the scene later. 
You'd have the same problem had you been there from the beginning. It came into being, the verse says, that which we see from that which we don't see, namely the Word of God. God just said, do matter. And matter did it. Out of nothing. Now, what's the answer? How does... How do you know that God did it? Verse 3, at first maddeningly, says we know by faith. You see that? By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Now, if you substitute the word evidence for the word faith right there, it works. It says, um, by evidence we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. That works, logically. Oh, yeah. But if you substitute the word conviction, it doesn't work so well, right? If you say, by conviction we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. Is it well, that's not a very good way of understanding, by conviction. I'm, I'm convicted that God did it, and therefore I understand that God did it. Well, that's, what kind of argument is that? That's just... I understand that God did it, therefore I'm convicted that God did it. Well, where are you going to put your feet here? This is quicksand. But, if the King James got something here, that this word means evidence... Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And therefore, verse 3 means, by faith, that is, evidence, we understand that the worlds were created by God. At least we have formal sense. And the crucial question becomes, what in the world do you mean faith is evidence? How is faith evidence? Now here, that, that question kept me busy a long time. This whole sermon kept me busy quite a long time. These are tough words here. Gloriously, excitingly pregnant words. I get so excited when I get into these things. But here's the connection that I want to make for you as we move at this question. How is faith to be understood in any way rationally as evidence. In Romans chapter 1, verse 20, you get the closest parallel where a biblical writer talks about seeing things being the means by which you apprehend unseen things about God. Let me read it to you. Romans 1, 20. Since the creation of the world, God's invisible Attributes, notice they're invisible, so how are you going to see them? Since the creation of the world, God's invisible attributes, namely his power and divine nature, have been clearly seen by, now here's the word, and it's the same word used in Hebrews 11.3, being understood by what has been made. Let me say it again now in my own words. He's saying, 
since the creation came into being, and there's anybody around to look at it, the invisible attributes of God that brought it into being and gave it its shape and order have been clearly seen. Now, instead of saying by faith, Paul says by the things which are made. In other words, in Paul's understanding, as you look at the things made by the handiwork of God or spoken out of his reasoned and ordered mind, you can read off the things that he's made by the things that are made. You can read off of them attributes of God. That's Paul's claim. Now, Hebrews doesn't say it quite like that. Hebrews says... We understand, it's the same word as Romans 1.20, by faith that God did it, by his word, by his reason, by his speaking power. Now, what do you make of that? How would you put those two things together? How do they shed light on one another? Here's my effort. I would say... That faith in the mind of this writer, Hebrews 11.3, faith is a spiritual seeing of the fingerprints of God on the things that he has made. It is a real, spiritual grasping or apprehending or perceiving of the marks of divinity on the things that God has brought into being by his mouth, his hands, his mind. You can read God off of those things, and the reading faculty is faith. When I say that there are fingerprints on it, I have in mind things like order, beauty, greatness, or what uh, Michael Behe, in that new book, Darwin's Black Box, calls irreducible complexity in the human cell. But most people look at it and don't see anything of God. So if it's there, if it's really there... If the fingerprints are there and the attributes are there and God is there, why so much not seeing? So I stopped and I said, Lord, I need light here. What's going on? Is what how how am I to understand this? How is the how is the work of faith in seeing the fingerprints of God on the things he's made evidence? And I thought of this, suppose somebody asked me, how do you know that, they're, that Focus on the Family has a uh, headquarters in Colorado Springs? My answer would be, I saw it on Tuesday and went into it. I saw it. And they would concede, I think, well, that's good evidence. My seeing is good evidence to them. I saw it. My seeing is evidence. 
Now, if I'm right that the spiritual seeing, the spiritual perception of what's really there, the fingerprints of God on the world, then it would make sense to say faith is evidence of what you can't see. If faith is a kind of seeing of what's really there, it's not double talk, it's not circular reasoning, it's not mind over matter, it's not the faith movement of bringing something into being by believing it strongly enough when it isn't there. It's really there, it's really perceived, and that real perception or real seeing is evidence that it's there. Just like I saw James Dobson and his building on Tuesday. And then this came to mind, this book. Now, you know what these are? This book called The Magic Eye. You see anything? (laughs) Color and Chaos. These are called 3D Imaging. Some of them are done with computers now. You know what this is right here? This is Beethoven. Ludwig von Beethoven's head. You know what this is right here? This is a lamb. This is a lamb. But nobody sees it from where you are. And I don't see it right here. (laughs) But I'm trying. (laughs) And I can't get it. But I saw it yesterday. And it did look like Ludwig von Beethoven. Now, you all know how this works. You, You don't look at the surface. You let your eyes focus deeper than the surface. You look through it. And in a minute, as if by magic, they call it the magic eye, as if by magic, Beethoven rises right up off the page. And the little lamb over here stands right up off the page. It's there. It is there. And so is God when you see him in the world. If you let yourself, by grace, look through the world, it will, as if by magic, but it's not magic, it's grace, suddenly a tree is no longer a mere tree. And the sunrise is no longer a mere sunrise. And the human cell that makes up our body with its complexity, or the brain, or the morality of the human soul, or the language learning of a little child, are never just the color and chaos you see at first glance, but rather, suddenly, it's there, and you see it. I stood in front of one of these things at the Mall of America about four years ago, and I looked, and I looked, and I tried to cross my eyes, and look through it and stand back and look at the shine and I couldn't see it. And Abraham, it's mountains, it's mountains. I said, I don't see it. 
He saw it. And if I said, Abraham, how do you know there are mountains there? He says, I see them. That's all he had to say. And that's all he needed. He knew they were there. He saw them. I know Beethoven is on that page. Yesterday he was there anyway. <laughs> I saw him. Now, I really believe that the Lord has... You may think this is an overstatement. I think the Lord has enabled this crazy little marketing ploy to come on the American scene so I could give this sermon illustration. I think God is painting pictures for us all over the place in reality for how things work, really work. So my conclusion is, on the first definition, faith is the evidence of things unseen, illustrated in verse 3 by, by faith we understand that the Word of God made the world, that those two verses together say, faith is a spiritual apprehending of the fingerprints of God on the things that He has made and the things that He has done such that when you see them, they are really there. And faith doesn't create anything. It only apprehends reality. And that many people, hard and Blind, like Ephesians 4.17 says, cannot see God rising up off a sunset. Cannot see God rising up off the gospel or off the human conscience and the handiwork of God. And the fact that they can't see it is no proof that it is not there. If you've seen it, you've got the proof and the evidence. Now that just leaves just a moment for this last Definition, which is the first one in verse 1 of chapter 11. Faith is the assurance or the substance of things hoped for. Now notice the difference. The second definition of faith has to do with things unseen like creation by the Word of God. The first definition in the first half of verse 1 has to do with things that haven't happened yet. Things hoped for. Promises of God. You're going to rise from the dead, John Piper. You're not going to be judged and condemned at the judgment day. You're going to be restored to Jesus Christ and enjoy intimate fellowship with Him forever and ever. There's going to be a banquet table spread. You're going to be perfected and whole. All your diseases, all your discouragements, all your inadequacies will be taken away forever and ever. You'll have joy at my right hand and pleasures forevermore. None of that's been seen. None of it's happened yet. It's all out there in the future. Is it going to happen? Can I give my life for that? How do I know? And this says, faith is the substance. It's the same word used in chapter 1, verse 3, where it says, Jesus Christ is the exact representation of the nature of God. That's the word. Substance, nature, essence, reality. So faith is the substance, the essence, the nature, the reality of the thing I'm hoping for. Now what does that mean? 
I think it means something like this. In the book of Hebrews, you remember numerous times it says, lay hold on the hope that is before you. Grasp, those words, grasp, lay hold on. Well, I picture faith in this definition like this. Faith is not just a uh, a hoping, a waiting, and a seeing of something coming way out there. Faith is a faculty by which we reach out into the gospel, into the word of God, and into all the promises of God held by the grace of God, and takes it, and takes it so firmly that it's got some of it. It's got some of it. The substance of it is in the faith. Faith is the substance in the sense that faith has and takes hold of and savors and smells and sees elements, essences of what's coming. It's like a down payment of what's out there. Faith does not make it happen. It doesn't make it sweet. It doesn't make it good. Faith is that spiritual faculty by which in the gospel, through the word of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are enabled to taste the goodness, taste the sweetness that is really going to be enjoyed in heaven. And there's a tasting of it now, a smelling of the aroma of Christ now, a seeing of the glory in the gospel now, and that is substance. It's the thing itself in advance. It's like the Lord's table. I really believe the Lord's table is meant to say things like this. Little teeny fragment, like David prayed. Little teeny fragment, little teeny cup, little taste, and someday a feast. That's the way faith is. Faith tastes, faith sees, faith smells, and therefore has in it the real thing, the real substance. So let me close with this summary. We've seen two definitions of faith. One, faith is a kind of spiritual tasting of what God has promised, so that in the faith there's a substantial assurance, a substantial, essential, it's got some of the thing in it, the assurance. It's not a shot in the dark. It's not mind over matter. It's not believing something into being. It is apprehending and tasting. And the other definition is that Faith is a seeing or a spiritual apprehending of the fingerprints of God on the things that have been made. The one, by the one, we know the the power and the wisdom of God to make us. And by the other, we know the grace and the goodness of God to save us. So my closing exhortation to you comes from Psalm 34, 8. And these are not my words, though they fit perfectly, this exposition. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And I plead with you, taste and see, taste and see. If you you were looking... At one of these pages here, if you were looking, 
and you didn't see anything this morning, if you look at the sunrise this morning and you didn't see God, if you're listening to the gospel as I'm preaching it and you don't see glory, then don't walk away and say, you're not there. It's not on the page. These are a bunch of jerks. They all have their head in the sand. Don't do that. At least give, give God a chance that there might be a dimension of seeing that if you would linger in prayer and trusting Him and asking Him, He might open your eyes and there would, before this day is over, stand forth from the gospel and from the sky outside the handiwork of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament declares His handiwork. And so does the gospel. Let's pray. Oh God, I plead with You that You would open the eyes of the blind that they might see what is really there in the gospel of Christ crucified and risen for sinners. And what is really there outside right now with the blue sky and the cool breeze and the sun obeying its movement across the sky or the earth obeying its rotation under the sun and the oxygen being there to supply our bodies and our hearts by this amazing electrical obedient impulse beating and beating and beating and all of our cells turning food into all kinds of things in our body and our consciences bearing witness against us and for us Everything pointing to the living God. Oh God, open our eyes that we might enjoy you, be satisfied in you, and so lead lives that are radically risk-taking in love. I'll be here at the front for a few minutes, and we'd love to pray with you. Why don't you stand for a brief benediction? Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all and all the people said, Amen.